Welcome to the Tuesday Night IBS Podcast. I'm your host, Johanna Revy. The podcast connects patients and providers with information and education about the diagnosis and treatment of IBS and related diagnoses. Each month, we feature a new episode with guest experts in the field of motility and neurogastroenterology who share the latest science and data for diagnosing and treating these conditions, as well as conversation about their impact on a patient's quality of life. Just a reminder, the information provided in this podcast is for informational and educational use only and should never be substituted for medical advice. Always work with your doctor to diagnose and treat your IBS symptoms effectively. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Tuesday Night IBS podcast episode. We're excited to welcome our March expert guest with us today, and that is Dr. Eric Shaw. And today we're going to be talking about constipation. We're calling it the truth about constipation because so many patients um, talk to us about constipation issues and questions around it. And so who better to talk to us about that than Dr. Shaw um, over at Dartmouth, um, Dr. Eric Shaw is an assistant professor of medicine and also an assistant professor at the Dartmouth Institute. Um, and he is director of gastrointestinal motility, esophageal and swallowing disorders center. And so we're really excited to have him with us this month. So Dr. Shaw, hello, how are you? Hi, thank you so much for the kind introduction and um, great to uh, great to speak with you and uh, to talk to with our listeners too. Yeah. So we have a a nice diverse audience of both providers and patients. So I think this is going to be really helpful and and hopefully provide some thought provoking questions as well that will come in throughout the month on Twitter. Um, So let's go ahead and and talk and we're going to talk all things constipation. So we know, you know, the the two um, diagnoses for constipation can be IBS-C, so IBS with constipation, or or chronic idiopathic constipation, which room four refers to it as functional constipation. But I think there's some pretty distinct differences between the two diagnoses. So I'm wondering if um, it would be good to just maybe identify and define those two diagnoses. I think that's a great starting point. You know, in, in practice, um, you know, we, we do think of both disease entities along a spectrum. And so it, there's a controversy. Are they the same? Are they different? And where it matters is really what's the underlying disease mechanism. So when we might think about irritable bowel syndrome as it's defined um, strictly in clinical trials, we're really thinking about the times when a disorder of gut-brain interaction with uh, global visceral hypersensitivity, abdominal sensory symptoms, uh, um, as opposed to uh, motor or bowel symptoms uh, might be predominant. And these in practice can comprise maybe not just abdominal pain, there's discomfort if we have time, uh, bloating, nausea, and it's, it's different in practice versus in trials that are defined by pain. Uh, when we think about chronic idiopathic constipation or functional constipation or chronic constipation, uh, the key there is it's not acute, you know, warning signs, this didn't happen suddenly, it's chronic. This has been going on a long time and um, not addressed. 
So really it helps us stratify. Are we working on motor symptoms, sensory symptoms? Do we call it abdominal bowel symptoms? But where do we, where do we really go from here? And a lot of times it's not one or the other, but it just helps to give us a framework so we can get started and also helps us understand uh, whether a drug or a treatment actually works in a clinical trial, which is a very important nuance to all of this. Good. Good. Okay. So now that we have that, let's delve into kind of what your approach is when working with a patient who's coming to you with these complaints. So in terms of red flags that you're going to be looking for, for example, um, what kind of testing would you be looking at ordering and why? What's the rationale in your thought process? Right. Uh, and that's a great question. So, you know, gastroenterology, uh, a lot, many patients will come to us and the fear is, do I have colon cancer causing my symptoms? So we do, we offer, of course, age appropriate colon cancer screening to every patient. Um, on top of that, you know, things like rectal bleeding, um, obstipation, a true change in a bowel habit, um, weight loss, uh, any, anything that isn't chronic constipation might concern us. Um, many patients will also not just have constipation per se, hard lumpy stools that are infrequent, but it's a lot more than that. And we know that from the Rome criteria. So sensation of incomplete evacuation um, and uh, need for manual maneuvers to defecate. Uh, what's important there is that some patients actually have diarrhea. Um, and diarrhea from the patient perspective can mean also mean many things. So when we um, hear from our patients who are suffering loose stools, loose stools at night, um, and, uh, um, that are bothersome, you know, we might think, does this patient have microscopic colitis? Um, and there, there might be other, other reasons to, um, pursue colonoscopy family history of inflammatory bowel disease, for example. Um, and, um, uh, and, uh, calprotectin being advocated in the recent, um, updated, uh, uh, guidelines from the American college of gastroenterology for irritable bowel syndrome as well. Um, so, um, any concern for inflammatory bowel disease there as well, um, might consider a colonoscopy, you know, in addition to that, um, you know, what is the role for, um, routine, um, uh, thyroid testing, um, for abnormal TSH? Um, so, and, you know, in our practice, we will, um, um, you know, we'll have a low threshold to order that. Um, and investigate for it. Um, celiac testing is advocated across, regardless of the subtype of IBS. Um, and um, we might associate it more classically with diarrhea predominant IBS, but we'll also think about it in patients coming in with um, uh, um, constipation predominant IBS. Um, patients will routinely get electrolytes and um, uh, blood counts, um, you know, even before they reach us. So um, I think that um, you know, um, on those, those points, um, you know, those are often done often before the patient reaches us, but any of those warning signs or red flags, um, are definitely concerning and, um, uh, it's, you know, warrants attention with uh, a gastroenterologist to think about that first. Yeah, that's good. Um, the celiac testing, I, I think is a really crucial thing to mention, regardless of the subtyping. Cause I think most people kind of think about that when the patient is coming with IBS D or diarrhea, more diarrhea symptoms, but I'm glad that you mentioned that, um, across the, the board. Um, okay. So 
So if a patient, um, let's say you've made a diagnosis of, um, of chronic idiopathic constipation, um, they meet the, the Rome criteria for, for functional constipation, they don't have abdominal pain as part of their symptoms, they're really just struggling with, um, with the constipation issues and, and the things that kind of accompany that, what, what are you kind of thinking in terms of transit? Are you, are you going to be doing testing to see if there's slow transit constipation issues there? Are you going to be looking at pelvic floor dysinergia issues? Um, how are you kind of approaching that patient? Right. That's a great question. And our patients often ask about their transit or digestion or motility. Um, and that's, that's actually sort of what there are primary care colleagues and um, general GI colleagues will might already be thinking. Um, so when the, the um, patient reaches us, um, there are usually a lot of questions along those lines and they're very good, thoughtful questions. Um, and so, you know, the first thing that we'll do is try to understand, um, you know, what is the patient perspective on the types of treatments at the end of the day that um, would be reasonable for that patient. Um, so for example, um, sending a patient to see a pelvic floor physical therapist, we often routinely do. Um, and, um, given our, um, uh, thankfully our access to community-based physical therapy. And as you can see, uh, Northern new England behind me, this is a you know, regular place, just like, you know, um, most places in the U S um, we have pelvic floor physical therapists. We'll send patients empirically to see a pelvic floor physical therapist um, when they've tried uh, laxatives or um, if they have a high deductible health plan, for example. Um, so it really comes down to what do we think the patients would want at the end of the day? Um, and so it, it might be a, a bit different in our practice, um, but that's because it really, for us, it, it really depends on what the patients want. We don't, we're not afraid of um, moving treatments up in the algorithm, if it makes more sense to that patient. Um, and, um, you know, at the end of the day, what we want is our patients are going to feel better. So we'll take that approach and then we'll, we'll do the diagnostic testing that, that makes sense either to validate the diagnosis and kind of confirm what's going on or to help predict treatment targets, um, and treatment outcomes for the patient or to just augment their care so we get a better understanding of what's going on when they go and do receive their care. So it's a great question um, and um, it's quite personalized. So how do you, um, I know I know a lot of patients have come and said they've had SITS, SITS marker testing and it didn't really reveal that they had slow transit, but they feel like they do and that they feel the food just doesn't move through their system as quickly as it should. And that's contributing to their constipation and their feeling of fullness and bloating and and how how often do you look at that as a as a marker for maybe confirmation of a diagnosis and and how often or I guess what is your thought on the efficacy of that kind of testing? Right, and that hits the nail on the head. Um, so transit testing correlates poorly with treatment outcomes. There's a very nice study from um, Dr. Kyle Stoller at Mass General looking at a uh, tendency towards significance associating a fecal load on an x-ray with slow transit, but it did not correlate with improvement in upper GI uh, symptoms using measures that we might classically think of in, um, in uh, patients with functional dyspepsia. 
Um, so, you know, what that tells us is at the end of the day with transit tests, I'm going to believe the patient. So I'll give two examples. One is let's say uh, um, a patient comes and sees us who has had an x-ray that shows no stool and that patient is constipated. Who do I believe? I'm going to believe the patient. What if the patient has lots of stool on an x-ray, but they actually feel better? I'm going to believe the patient. I'm not going to treat the x-ray. So we'll actually use that analogy, not infrequently, um, to either sort of reframe uh, the treatment goals um, away from, say, normal versus slow transit, since they kind of tend to be treated the same um, across the board in most practice settings. But, um, but what we do is we try to reframe around evaluating the pelvic floor. Um, the opportunity with treating the pelvic floor is what if there's a way to obviate the need, get rid of the need for laxatives at all? So, um, and so that's where um, we start from the bottom worker, literally, I guess, and we just work our way up from there. Um, and a lot of the transit issues can be due to pelvic floor. You know, one thing I will say is, um, and you know, this analogy works in most places, we use a beautiful Boston traffic analogy. So imagine you're driving <laughs> down the road in traffic, okay. And there's an accident at the end of the road. If you're sitting in traffic and you hit the gas pedal and you're taking Miralax, okay, all you're going to do is hit the driver in front of you, right? And there's emergency lanes in traffic. So when the emergency lanes are, are open, there's cars rushing down the sides. And that's what we call overflow diarrhea. Um, there are some very good handouts through the, I, um, uh, the IFFGD, the International Foundation for Ga um, Gastrointestinal Disorders. So, um, and Rome speaks on this topic as well. So it's, it's well known to us all is overflow diarrhea. Um, what comes out the other end of traffic could be hard lumps or it could be loose and we just can't quite tell, but a better way to treat the traffic flow issue might be to, um, address the pelvic floor, get rid of the accidents in the road and help the traffic just move better. That also helps with the sensory symptoms, um, bloating and nausea, um, and, uh, pain, all of which, um, can be very severe as we know, um, and are often underreported, especially if we don't ask. Yeah. I, I love that you, you look at the pelvic floor, um, as a, let's say a, a major co contribution to this process, because I think a lot of people don't even recognize that they have pelvic floor dysfunction or what that means. Um, and, speaking from experience, have had a lot of pelvic floor issues and had to have surgery to correct a lot of it uh, with some, some PT. And it's made a huge difference for me. Um, and so I'm just curious about that evaluation. So, um, you know, obviously first step is doing a, a digital rectal exam. And interestingly, there's a study, it's quite old now, I think it's 2008, but it was a survey of um, GI fellows asking about the, um, how often and how much relevancy they place on the digital rectal exam. And most of them self-reported that they very rarely do one as part of their diagnostic workup on a patient um, in clinic. And some of them even reported that they had never even been taught how to appropriately do a digital rectal exam, which I find concerning. Um, and so I'm just curious from your perspective, you know, thoughts on the DRE and, and what role that plays in evaluation of the pelvic floor. Right. Uh, that's a very important question. Uh, there's a, 
a couple nice articles. One comes to mind um, from uh, Dr. Satish Rao's group, and then also Dr. Adil Baruch's group, both of whom advocate um, doing a digital rectal exam. We don't know the frequency of how often digital rectal exam to perform across gastroenterology. We do do a rectal exam, of course, preceding a colonoscopy, but in the office, you know, how often is it, is it actually done? Um, I, I'm not sure that the data are actually out there on it. It's a very interesting um, uh, topic for all the reasons you state. Yeah. Um, the, the importance of it can't be understated. Um, the challenge is you have to know what you're doing, you know, right. and they have to standardize it. And, you know, the one concern with just using a digital rectal exam to make a positive diagnosis is that there's probably differences, not only among experts who are, you know, anorectal, anorectal physiology experts, but there are probably also just differences in variability among anybody um, who's trained in doing a digital rectal exam. We might be able to pick up one finding um, versus our colleague who's able to pick up another. Um, there was a nice uh, poster from uh, Dr. Bill Chase group to that effect, actually, a few years ago um, at one of our major meetings. Um, so, um, so it is important um, and it can be tracked over time. And, the, you know, it's one of those, one of those um, tools in the toolbox to, that we should do, and we should know how to do it and, and, you know, appropriately evaluate the pelvic floor to follow our patients along. Um, and, um, but, you know, I, I think it's also important to recognize the role for testing to standardize and um, help kind of communicate among, um, you know, groups of gastroenterologists and care teams, um, as to what's going on a bit better too. So provides more objective data. Yeah. Um, what about rectoceles? You know, if a patient comes to you and is telling you that they're um, using manual maneuvers to have a full and complete bowel movement, um, are you going to be thinking about a possible clinically significant rectoceles? That's a great question. So, um, so, you know, one of the questions that inevitably comes up there is surgery, um, okay. will surgery help? Right. And, you know, one important thing is we're gastroenterologists, so we don't operate. Right. Um, but there, it, there is a, um, there is a, a distinction between the presence of a rectocele, an imaging finding, you know, versus perhaps is it there, but is it not the cause of disease? And we see this phenomenon as well with hiatal hernia. Um, and reflux is the presence of a hiatal hernia diagnostic of, of acid reflux. And we know based on our recent guidelines and prior guidelines um, uh, published by the AGA and the ACG um, that, um, that uh, um, the answer is no. And so it's a imaging finding um, and um, you know, versus the clinical disease. So, you know, whether it ties to symptom improvement generally takes a team-based approach. It's very personalized. Um, and, um, frequently what we will, um, try to do is address the, um, uh, the underlying, uh, uh, sort of structural mechanical issues to help the muscles work better and the nerves work better, um, before addressing, um, the say rectocele. And there can also be other seals. So, um, enterocele, cystocele, and, you know, other signs of weakness of the pelvic floor and laxity, um, pelvic floor descent um, is another, um, another example. So, um, but it usually takes a team-based approach to get at that answer. It's a very, very, uh, thoughtful approach essentially. So, yeah. Yeah. 
So team-based approach, you're talking pelvic floor physical therapists, which you've mentioned. What about biofeedback? I mean, we've seen a lot of interesting data from Satish Rao's group on the role of biofeedback. Um, Do you have access to biofeedback there for your patients? And and what's what's been your experience with that? That is a really good question. So uh, yes. Yeah, so, um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Rao's group, Dr. Barucha, um, uh, oversees do- the, um, uh, Dr. Grossi just, uh, published a study several years ago, um, on their experience. Um, uh, Emma, Dr. Emma Carrington, um, who led the, um, uh, internet, uh, international anorectal physiology working group, um, consensus, um, and was first author of that. There's been a lot of work going into, yeah. um, into this and Dr. Cirioni, who published a very, um, important paper in gastroenterology, um, back in, um, 2005 and I believe 2006, um, many studies before that as well. Um, and so we know biofeedback works. The thing is it takes a lot of visits to do. Um, yeah. And, um, and, uh, so, you know, one question, um, is out in the community is, is that feasible and it to deliver repeated visits, intensive, straight biofeedback. Um, and you know, what, what we find is we have community-based physical therapists who are pelvic floor physical therapists. They're trained. They're very good. They know biofeedback and they also do other things. Um, and so, you know, one thing that I think was important for us was to listen to our physical therapists, to approach them about, um, uh, the ANMS ESNM, um, biofeedback protocol, um, to see what aspects of it were feasible. And what we were able to do is actually develop, um, with minimal sort of, um, time investment. They already know, they already know what they're doing, um, is to standardize their approach, um, where they take the core concepts of biofeedback. Um, this is rural. So we're the most rural academic medical center in the U S by driving distance, um, Dartmouth is. And so what that means is we have mountains in the way. Um, you can't go East and West in the Northeast. You can go North and South East and West requires traveling across mountains. So, um, rather than high visit frequency, our physical therapists who've been doing this for 10, 20 years, are very adept at teaching home-based um, biofeedback, but also other maneuvers um, along as well that um, we find to be very effective. And there's actually some recent evidence that was published in um, CGH and gastroenterology from um, Dr. Baruch's group on some of the, abdom- the importance of the abdominal musculature um, in, uh, in um, uh, successful defecation and that actually corroborates what Dr. Rao's been advocating as well um, with multiple subtypes of biofeedback that there are multiple subtypes of dysenergia. There's just, there's just a lot going on. So, you know, I give our physical therapists a lot of credit um, for all the hard work they do. And if there's an expert in physical exams, it's them because that's the nature of their work. Yeah. A hundred percent agree. Um, so I know that um, you're a a fan of the uh, multidisciplinary model of care for patients. Um, and as we've been discussing, it takes a team-based approach. Um, in terms of pharmacological treatments for constipation, chronic constipation, um, what have you found that that is kind of your first line for patients? Let's say they've already done the Miralax, they've done the stool softeners, they've increased their fiber, they're exercising regularly, nothing seems to be effective. 
what are you thinking next? So that, that is a good question. What do we do as the next step? Yeah. And what's, what's very good now is that we have so many agents in this area. And I think it's as many as inflammatory bowel disease. So yeah. I'll say it again. We have as many agents as we have for IBS and for chronic idiopathic constipation. Again, in clinical practice, a lot of our patients, um, you know, are diagnosed with an overlap between both. Um, some of the agents are approved for one versus another. Um, and, um, the disease can wax and wane over time. So rather than labeling patients, we don't like labeling is, um, but, to um, you know, choose just one disease, the overlap, um, you know, recognizes the breadth of, um, what's going on. We don't find, um, uh, um, you know, we find that all the approved agents are, are pretty effective. Um, you know, I, I think that one, um, you know, interesting point about them is that they're not all the same. Um, there are different drug classes. Um, so there are five HT4 agonists, there are guanylate C cyclase C agonists. Um, and then there, um, the chloride channel, um, uh, ag there's that, a the agent lubriprostone, which has been around for a very long time. So I think a lot of us are familiar with that. Um, so, you know, and that's our spectrum right now. Um, there's a recently approved, um, uh, uh, drug to treat, um, IBSC. Um, that targets the targets um, NHE exchange. Um, so it's a very um, it, it's a it's a growing field. Um, you know where each drug is going to be able to fall. Um, you know right now, since we don't have really good tests per se to um, choose one versus another, um, is um, it depends on insurance. You know I will actually say that. Um, you know, there is, um, exploratory evidence and secondary evidence in the five HD four class that perhaps the, um, foregut transit testing can predict clinical outcomes, um, you know, with some of these agents, um, you know, going back to data from anterodiodenal manometries, um, that, um, you know, at most centers are not performed, um, anymore. It's a, you know, it's a cumbersome test. It's, it's long for the patient, but, um, you know, there might be some, there is, there might be a role to consider it there. Um, and, um, so I think a lot of gastroenterologists who practice in the area have adopted that. Um, uh, but you know, one of the main issues is the, um, insurance burden and the prior authorization burden. So we just published in the red journal, American journal of gastroenterology, um, a few couple months ago about, about this problem in chronic constipation and have, also published that in CGH, uh, Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology, and also the Red Journal IBS as well, um, that this is a problem. Um, so patients and their care team might agree on a treatment, but then they can't get it. So um, we find that drives the treatment choice a lot. Um, and so, you know, you, you do the best you can to advocate for the, um, the treatment you think is going to help. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is an issue for a lot of these drugs. You're right. I think this is where all of our um, GI membership societies come into play and, and really work at the legislative level and advocacy level with the insurance companies and legislation to try and improve access and reimbursement. Um, let's move to treatment for IBS. Obviously, a lot of the things we've already discussed would apply for patients with IBSC as well, but there is that differing factor of abdominal pain or discomfort. And so, you know, if that is the patient's main complaint and it's not resolved by the team approach that we've discussed, um, 
how are you going to manage that, that abdominal pain issue? Right. That's a great question. And so there's so many disease mechanisms. Um, and, um, you know, there's, there's, there's just so many mechanisms and so many different treatments available. Um, so I'll just go through a few of them and then, um, you know, we can go from there. Um, so, you know, one is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, it's, it's, it's such a real, it's a fascinating story that began so many years ago and has really blossomed into an entire field of the gut microbiome. Um, and we know the, um, effects of, um, rifaximin and breath testing to predict rifaximin response is secondary endpoints and, um, in a study published in the, the red journal recently. Um, so, you know, that is one option, um, for patients and we have guidelines to that effect. Um, and you know, it is, there is a, um, you know, the tests aren't perfect and there is always room for improvement. And I think that can be said, um, you know, across the board for many of, many of our mechanisms, um, that we consider in practice. So one of the important things is, you know, if, if one strategy isn't working, um, you know, is that really the right strategy? Um, and, or is it time to pull back and reassess? Um, and, um, you know, I think discussing the, for all of it, discussing limitations between research and clinical practice is, is very important. Um, neuromodulation, um, is very beneficial. Neuromodulation is a very wide world. So, um, there's no one right agent. Um, and, um, so, you know, I, I think it's good to be familiar with very comfortable with a couple or three agents. Um, we do find in gastroenterology that our primary care colleagues are actually quite adept at prescribing these agents. Um, a lot of times what they'd like to know um, for our patients is what's the dose and you know what works for the gut. And right. if they know that, they're fine and they can totally manage that. Um, and um, you know, and that that can help um, you know, rebuild the relationship between a primary care um provider, um, a physician, a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant with that patient locally, um, which is very critical, um, because, you know, we think about the hub and spoke of care here. Um, you know, really the hub is, is the patient and their local medical home. We want to make sure we rebuild that. So, um, uh, but yeah, neuromodulation, it's, it's very good to know a few agents. I'm sure we're going to touch on that soon. And then, um, you know, their dietary interventions. We, we right. know that the low FODMAP diet is more beneficial for abdominal sensory symptoms. We don't see, you know, as strong a benefit for um, the bowel symptoms. So we tend to use it for patients who um, typically we will have diarrhea, predominant irritable bowel syndrome, but mainly sensory symptoms. Um, and then um, uh, other forms of neuromodulation going back to that, you know, perhaps we don't need to use a pill. All right. So go through the brain, talk to the gut and, um, we can do GI behavioral health interventions, um, including, um, the litany of cognitive behavioral therapy, hypnotherapy, um, and, uh, you know, many others was act, um, which is, which has been studied as well. So, um, and others. So, you know, and choosing that, um, at present, um, uh, generally needs, um, engagement with the GI health psychologist. And there, unfortunately, um, aren't as many as we, um, uh, might, um, you know, need, um, to meet the unmet need. Um, but I know that the Rome foundation is doing incredible work to bring together the, um, consortium of, um, experts in this area, um, to help grow that field and, um, generate not only interest, but education, um, you know, across our mental health colleagues who in this sense are not delivering mental health, they're delivering GI care. Um, and so, you know, I think there might be some, 
opportunities there. Um, you know, beyond the pelvic floor um, and the drugs that might that target um, irritable bowel syndrome and chronic constipation, there are many other treatments that can be offered that are you know over the counter and the like. And you know, I think that as the amount of evidence to support a treatment goes down, it's just important to balance. Um, you know, what do we know about the treatment in terms of its safety? Um, how much does it cost for the patient? At the end of the day, is it going to harm the patient? Is it worth it? Um, and, um, you know, and if it's worth trying, sure. Um, but, um, we do want to make sure we, um, you know, ground decisions on the, the evidence that's available for sure. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different types of treatments we can apply and use and discuss with our patients. It's, um, yeah, yeah very wide okay. topic. So, so one thing I, I'm thinking of, as you're talking about evidence, you know, I'll, I have a lot of patients that, um, use over-the-counter probiotics and they just swear that it helps manage their, not just their abdominal pain and bloating, but their disrupted bowel habit as well, whether it's diarrhea or constipation. And, you know, I, I know we've had other guests kind of debate the topic of efficacy and data on probiotics. And I think we all agree that there's just not enough data to make a decision on the benefits necessarily, but, you know, I personally, I think if a patient is taking it and they really feel benefit from it, then sometimes you just kind of let that lie. <laughs> I don't know what your thoughts are clinically speaking. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's the, um, that's kind of the, the, I think the point is that there isn't enough random, good, high quality, multi-center randomized clinical yeah. trial evidence on current endpoints with really detailed microbiome analysis. And, you know, a lot of the work that came out of what Mark Pimentel, Dr. Mark Pimentel Cedars was looking at is you, it's really hard to culture the gut microbiome. I know that Dr. Rao is working on this as well. And there's a lot that's lost when we try to culture, especially when it's exposed to air, um, when it goes through the working channel of a scope and it's exposed to oral flora. So, um, so that's tough. Um, but, um, you know, so, so, uh, but, but where the field, it has room to grow, uh, the recommendation that came out from the AGA and their guidelines on this topic is important is that, um, you know, we do, um, advise against the routine use in, um, clinical practice. It's a conditional recommendation. So conditional means shared decision-making, which means that, you know, we're not going to call all of our patients and tell them to stop today. Um, but it, it just means that more often than not, our patients in shared decision-making would choose not to take these once, uh, we discuss the evidence for and against them. Um, there's a lot we don't know. And it goes exactly to that as cost, safety, efficacy, you know, it's the unknown of what could happen. Um, but also if it's really helping and the patient ha is suffering terrible quality of life from constipation, and it seems to help, you know, what's the harm. And so that's really the question. So, and a lot of times you know, we, they might, the patient might continue it. So, yeah. So shared decision-making so important and so critical to, um, improved outcomes. And I'm curious around, um, patient education. So I really, you know, a, a lot of patients have no real good knowledge about their condition, about the physiology behind it, about the medications and the potential side effects. There's just, you know, there, there isn't that shared decision-making and that patient education component. And, you know, how do you, what approach do you take with your patients? How much information are you giving them? Um, 
And, and what questions are you asking them to kind of assess their knowledge before they leave your, your visit? Right. So, um, you know, one of the things we want to learn is um, what are the potential reasons that a certain treatment option might fail clinically? Um, and that can be important to glean. So if a patient's already having, say, diarrhea uh, with laxatives, and diarrhea with a drug, that might be a reason I might think about pelvic floor. We tend to notice that uh, pelvic floor dysfunction, we recall that Boston traffic analogy with uh, uh, Miralax. So overflow diarrhea with that's drug in, drug related or treatment related, we might consider the pelvic floor. Um, so there's the clinical aspects. And, you know, I think in medicine, we're good at considering all that. Where I think a lot of, you know, emphasis probably needs to happen more is on the cost side. Um, and what is cost? Cost is not just money, but also time. And cost ends up uh, labeling patients as non-compliant. And it's not our patient's fault. They couldn't make it to the physical therapist because it was snowing and there was a big snowstorm and the roads were closed, you know, or um, there's no one to drive the patient or to watch their, you know, loved ones at home. Um, and so um, their kids, their parents, you know, family members, and there's a lot going on. So with dietary therapies for irritable bowel syndrome as well, you know, are you cooking two meals now? And that's where dietitians come into play. So we have to start thinking about what are the ramifications of doing treatment? What are the real costs? How life-changing is this going to be um, beyond just can the patient afford it? And it's a lot of these practical questions that drive what we might call non-compliance, but it's not non-compliance. It's really just helping the patient get to the right you know, get the right treatment so they can just have better quality of life at the end of the day and feel better. What we all want at the end of the day is more time, time with ourselves, time with loved ones, time at work and um, fulfillment. And so, um, you know, I think taking that approach to try to probe and ask questions, um, there may not necessarily be a set rubric, but, um, uh, but I think using that approach really, really helps to get some insight. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, and I, I mean, the time that you're spending in clinic will come back to you in tenfolds in just their outcomes and their overall therapeutic relationship with you. So it's time well spent, um, even if it takes a few more minutes. Um, all right. We have a few minutes before we wrap. So I wanted to ask you about some um, very common, um, commonly held beliefs about constipation and have you uh, kind of debunk some myths if you don't mind. So a first one that's very common amongst patients is that you need to have a bowel movement every day. And if you don't, then that's constipation. True or false? False. It's, it's a really good one. Um, yeah. False. Yeah. So, so I, I, one thing I, I think is really important and I'm sure that most providers do is when a patient is saying they have constipation, asking them what they mean by constipation. So are, are you referring to the number of bowel movements you have? Are you referring to straining in order to have a bowel movement? I think all of that is so important to understand what the patient's thinking when they say they have constipation, because it could be, they just you know think that they have that because they aren't having a bowel movement daily. Um, and that's obviously not not the case for all people. What is the healthy number of bowel movements that a, a person should be looking to have um, per week? Sure. So the FDA um, endpoints 
use at least three bowel movements per week as defining clinical response. All right. What's important there is that this involves patients who had fewer than three bowel movements to enroll in clinical trials. So it does not mean necessarily that everyone should have at least three per week. It actually becomes quite personalized and there really isn't a cutoff. Now I will say going every two weeks is might be a reason to see a doctor. Okay. But, um, but there isn't a set number. And so that raises a good point. We try to reframe this from frequency and form to the whole experience, sensation of incomplete evacuation, need for manual maneuvers. Straining is funny because everyone advises to stop straining. And so patients do, and they don't meet the criteria. But if we read the recent update for clinical practice from the Rome Foundation, I think a lot of this makes sense. It basically, we're advised to use our judgment and right. um, and just do the right thing, um, essentially. And I, I think that, um, yeah, so that's that's very helpful. Okay, so here's another one, true or false. Constipation can cause you to absorb poisonous substances from the stool and lead to diseases such as chronic arthritis, asthma, and even colon cancer. Great question. That is false. Um, and so the more time that the body has to be exposed to stool is not known to correlate with those diseases. Um, and we, we sometimes do, um, hear that from our patients. And so it's, you know, it's always very good to, um, to, um, allay those concerns that said it impairs quality of life. And so quality of life means you can't get out of the house. So a lot of those questions, um, you know, we try to reframe so that we can, um, really start to understand what's driving the patient, not only to come to the physician, um, or their care provider, um, but also try to identify a treatment goal that works for the patient with, um, you know, treatment we have in the arsenal. Yeah. So this is one that, um, I hear frequently from parents of children, and that is that ignoring the urge, their child will many times ignore the urge to have a bowel movement and the parents are, are quite concerned that that's going to lead to damage in the bowel or cause chronic constipation True, faults somewhere in between. Yeah. So, you know, it's, we don't, we're not going to, we don't know because we're not going to have a clinical trial on it. Um, yeah. but at the same time, it, it might not, um, it might not have a, a dangerous long lasting effect, but that said, you know, we don't know. And so on the adult side, we, we do advocate, don't ignore the urge to defecate, but that's what taken within a broader context. We don't want this to generate worry and concern. It's, it's, it's basically a sign of the need to seek medical care and start to get the right treatment so that the overall, the disease can get better. Um, so that's a very good question and, you know, perhaps a good opportunity to reframe the treatment goal. So, right. All right. Last one, true or false, that regular enemas or colon irrigation are an effective way to prevent or cure chronic constipation. Sure. Um, so tap water enemas, they're safe, but they're tap water enemas. Okay. Um, so maybe there's a better way. 
Okay. Yeah. Um, that's one point. The other is that the hyperosmolar agents that are over the counter um, can change the electrolyte balance. Um, the problem with colonics and colonic infusions of this and that is the volume. It affects electrolytes. It might have other substances in it. Um, and so it can become a safety issue. Um, right. And so, um, so, you know, we do uh, strongly advise caution on that. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think it's a sign of an opportunity to try to find a better treatment um, to help with quality of life for sure. So, and, you know, one thing I, um, um, that's important to mention through all of this is the role of the brain gut. So the work that, um, Dr. Lin Chang, um, and Dr. Drosman, not only in the science behind it, but also in teaching the, you know, the art of the discussion, um, remains ever important. And so, you know, to all of our listeners, if you haven't watched the videos, um, that will teach you um, how to have a discussion with our patients um, in a way that really opens up our eyes to, um, you know, what are we, what's really the goal here and what are we trying to do is improve our patients' lives. I think, I think that helping frame, not just the diagnosis, but beyond the diagnosis, get that patient to the right treatment, rebuild their medical home um, and um, help, help our patients kind of rebuild their lives. Um, so those are, those are very good resources that, um, we've, we've found helpful. Um, and uh, I know a lot of our listeners have as well. That's great. Now I would be remiss if I let you leave without asking you one more question that is very common and that is safety of long, um, use of stimulant laxatives. Is there danger in using them for long-term, um, for constipation? Right. That's a very good question. So this has been extensively studied. Um, and so it, it there's a, an entity known as melanosis coli where the, col the colon changes color um, related to um, uh, the use of Senecot. Um, the, uh, but do, do these agents actually cause dependence? And it looks like the answer is no, um, which is good news. Um, you know, that said, uh, we want to make sure that patients are doing this under the care of a clinical provider. Um, the stimulant laxatives could affect electrolyte imbalance and the like. Um, and, you know, when used properly, chronic stimulant laxatives can absolutely be safe, but it does require monitoring. And it begs the question, is there a better treatment um, or is this a stopgap and along the way? So um, we definitely advise um, um, seeking help in those conditions um, just to see if there's a better way. Good. Any last minute thoughts, clinical pearls of wisdom um, for providers or for patients uh, as it relates to constipation? Yeah. So, you know, I think to sum it up, um, constipation is not constipation and diarrhea is not diarrhea. And IBSC <laughs> might be CIC, um, right. but the importance of distinguishing it just helps us think through sort of how we approach the disease. So, I think everyone is a winner here. Um, and it really just comes down to, um, we have so many different treatments in our arsenal and not only they have different clinical, um, clinical outcomes, but there's also, um, different aspects on cost and time for our patients to get the care they need. So the whole wide world and it's, um, it's, uh, uh, a lot of fun. Perfect. Well, thanks again so much for joining us. If you have any questions for Dr. Shaw, you can send them to us through our Twitter account, and that's at Tuesday Night IBS. 
This will be posted on our podcast as well as this video posted on March 8th, which is the second Tuesday of the month for our monthly chat on constipation. I'm still trying to get Dr. Shaw to join Twitter. He's missing out on the whole GI world there, but uh, we'll we'll get him by DDW, I'm sure. Um, But in the meantime, send us some questions. We'll pass them along and, and get his answers for you. Again, thanks so much for being with us. We'll see you next time. Take care, everyone. Bye now. Join us again next month for another episode of Tuesday Night IBS, and be sure to follow the conversation on our Twitter page at hashtag Tuesday Night IBS. We host live Twitter chats on the second Tuesday of each month at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time with our monthly guest and encourage you to join in the conversation. In addition, check out our page on Facebook at Tuesday Night IBS and find video presentations provided monthly by our our guest experts to further guide our learning and conversation about these important topics. See you next month.